I actually just wrote a piece about um, automation and I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a total geek, you know, I'm like all, you know, science fiction, technology, space, exploration, and I like the idea of automation. But like a lot of things in, in the tech industry, my, my biggest question is also, why do we want to automate everything? What is this fascination with automation? Is it again about efficiency? Is it really about making better lives for employees? There's a lot of people that are using that story. I call it a story because I think it's a story that, you know, once we automate everything, we'll never have to work. And I'm like, what? <laughs> First of all, I love working. I, I don't want my job automated. I don't think it can be, but let's say it can. I, I don't want it. I, I'll feel so meaningless uh, if I can't do what I do. I love what I'm doing. And yes, automation is fantastic to take away uh, certain hazardous and, and unnecessary tasks from people. But it sounds to me quite funny that we created 80% of the jobs that we have today are man-made. Uh, I don't want to say fictional, but kind of, let's say, they're, they're side effects of, of the Industrial Revolution. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. The world looks different through rose-tinted glasses. Is the glass half full? or Well, it depends. Are you wearing augmented reality glasses? What exactly are you seeing? Today, we've got Galit Ariel on the program. She's a transdisciplinary creative, strategic thinker, and self-described digital hippie. Check out her work. You will understand why. This woman is amazing. She's the author of Augmenting Alice, The Future of Identity and Experience in Reality. And she explores the manner in which augmented reality's diffusion shifts cultural paradigms and redefines core concepts around culture, space, experience, ethics, and more. She's got an agency that helps clients and large brands do the same. She's been featured at TED, The Next Web, South by Southwest, and started a UK-based think tank at Ravensboro University Architecture Center, looking at the future of urban environments and how they influence the human experience. In today's episode, we go heavy when we discuss life beyond move fast and break things, how augmented reality will connect all of us in unexpected ways, and why it'll beat out VR, what she thinks about automation jobs and more, why she's worried about the lack of humanity in tech, Galit's thoughts on what you can expect when it comes to AR epicness and which companies to expect it from, and why she's worried about privacy and rights going forward. This one's one where we get into a vast wealth of different issues surrounding the future of all of us and the way we live our lives from Google Glasses, spying on people, and much, much more. You guys are going to enjoy this one. And when you do, please consider sharing this with a friend. Your support, your word of mouth referrals to friends, family members is the number one way that you can support our show by helping us reach more people so that we can build a bigger mission around empowering individuals and creators around the world to build a better world for all of us. It's not something that any of us can do alone. There's a great quote that I love. If you've got a dream, it takes a team. And if it doesn't take a team, you're not dreaming big enough. Well, you guys are the disruptors. You're our team. Help us make this team bigger so that we can disrupt more things and build a better world. Disruptors.fm slash iTunes. You can leave a review or refer people there and tell people about the podcast if you love it, of course. If not, don't. But you're still here, so you might just love it. But now, without further ado, I give you Galit Ariel. 
I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the Cash App and coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix, and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So disruptors and disruptive, it's a dirty, terrible word. We were talking about it before the podcast. Why? Well, I, I'm really big on semantics and, and the meaning of, of words and wording. And um, I've been saying it for a while that um, for me, disruption is, let's say, a byproduct of innovation. But I'm seeing way too many, let's say, disruptive innovation or intentions that are more there just for the sake of disrupting and less for the sake of really creating better alternatives. And this is where I'm quite concerned when people talk about disruption. Some disruption is necessary, some disruption is inevitable, but I just have a feeling that a lot of people are putting their money and time in disrupting first and understanding what it is that they're disrupting and the consequences of the disruption much, much later when it's too late. Being human, that's a normal tendency that we have, but it truly affects, especially when we talk about exponential technologies that get embedded quite quickly and, and quite widely uh, globally, it can affect entire cultures, societies, or cities. And a good, a good um, example is um, the tourism industry, including a lot of platforms like Airbnb and uh, Uber and GetTaxi that actually created a flux of, of tourists coming into cities that are not set up for, for this amount of people. And this heavily influences um, the quality of life of the residents, but also the economy and <laughs> climate change, etc. And these are things that we need to be better at while we create disruptive uh, technologies and innovation. It's fine to do them if you do apply the time uh, and research before and during their application to understand speculative and potential impact of what you're creating. So basically don't just move fast and break things. I think it's complicated though because let's say that let's say that Uber tried to go to regulators when they were initially getting started. They were what were they going to say? We want to change the taxi industry so that it's easier to get a taxi. Well sure, that doesn't sound like a problem. But the way that things get changed a lot of times it's a it's almost a not not a black mirror what's the word a black swan in terms of some things are very very hard to predict and then some things where we'll probably have people buying political election ads on Facebook should be much easier to predict there just wasn't the effort there well on on Uber's case i actually have to say i disagree because i think when you look at their business model and when you look and that's that's if I talk about a lot of technology platforms, their business model is, is really efficiency and revenue based, right? So yeah, part of it is like to create a better, easier user experience for people that are 
that need the transportation, uh, but very little was was created there to protect, for example, the driver's industry or to or to put money into uh, the protection and safety of the users. And it took them like it was some hefty growing pains, especially with them uh, in creating a platform that is, let's say, better, although disputably, it still um, has some ethical issues on certain levels. But, you know, when you cut the costs of traditional platforms, you also cutting the protection and the buffers that exist there as well. The same thing is about banking. If we talk about cryptocurrency or, or blockchain. So yeah, there's a lot of residue and, and reverent things, but they are there for a reason. If you don't stop to ask yourself, what, why are they there? You know, why were they their taxi companies? What is the benefit of having the old structures and institutions? You, and you just jump into the solution, which is cutting off all these layers, um, yeah, you will create some harm inevitably. And it is very predictable, um, to be honest. You can't predict everything. And I don't expect, especially with technology, you can't sit and wait for approvals. You can't sit and wait for um, to test every single thing. But you at least have to have the intention to test and to create an innovation process and a product that allows allows you to, to repair it as you go and not to just build a revenue model that cannot be agile to, to your own uh, shortcomings, you know, but for everything else, yes, right? Do you think the problem is the way that companies are built or the way the incentives are set up? Because I'd argue it's the way the incentives are set up. If you look at the way pu- public companies are structured, more or less, there's one truism that's always hold, held true, and it's probably was our great rise and will be our great fall, and that is fiduciary responsibility over all else which means that if you can go and run over someone's house and add an extra $2 to your bottom line, then by all means do it because it's better for the business. And that's obviously an extreme hyperbole. But the, the companies are playing the game they're supposed to play because it's what society says. Is it fair to say that you should handicap yourself when everyone else is trying to find similar advantages? Or should we say that we have to change the game so that we can play a better version? Um, I would say both are true. Uh, I think um, they're my, I call it like the three-layered cake. I always put the, the responsibility on top level for policymakers that are supposed to be creating some, some sort of framework. I don't want to say legislation, but at least a framework that helps protect society first and then companies and individuals later. That's where I think governance lies. I put it also on the companies themselves because, you know, yeah, they're playing the games, but not everybody plays the game. You know, I can find like really great examples of companies that are highly profitable and innovative and and also ethical. It's not unheard of. So the idea, this this kind of notion that, well, you know, if you want to get ahead, you have to like, you know, crush some consumers and societies. I completely disagree with that. And that's a choice. I don't think most companies started off as, uh, you know, evil, carnival, trying to like take over the world. But I think as they grow bigger and as they got trapped within their own um, economic, um, with the, the economy, the world economy and the incentives that are, they're getting socially and financially, they kind of got caught with the race. Nobody told them off. The consumers were running to them. So, hey, why would they change? But still, you know, in Israel, they say just because you don't know the laws doesn't mean that you can break them. So just because nobody slapped you on the wrist uh, doesn't mean that it's okay to behave in an antisocial uh, manner. And third layer is, is the consumers, the users, the society, which is an organic 
entity and also um, is partially manipulated, but partially accepting values and engagements that are not necessarily ethical, moral, and uh, better for, for individuals, society, and the world. So it's, it's a complex system, yes, but every, everybody are to blame and everybody can solve it. Uh, I'm just worried that not a lot of people feel that they need to and understand the impact of, of this sort of behavior. It's a collective action problem where everyone benefits more than they lose. And the only way that you can solve the problem is having larger scale action like climate change, etc. Because if one country decides to put in effort and another country doesn't, well, then shoot, you're still screwed anyways. That, that's why I think that without changing the incentives, you almost create the scenario where regardless of how many great leaders we have, Mark Zuckerberg could be the greatest person in the world and have the best of intentions, but there's no guarantee his successor will be or a successor successor. And eventually you have a slippery slope back to exactly where you started unless you fix the the underlying gravity, so to speak. Yeah. And I think it is changing a bit too slow. I think it is changing. And I actually think, you know, when, when you just remarked that, you know, if everybody's winning, feel like they're winning, gaining more than they're losing, uh, why would they change? Well, I wish I could say this is a situation. Uh, I'm a very optimistic, positive person, but and I hate to, you know, to sound like a grumpy old woman, but, you know, I don't think we have been in a lot of cases applying technology and innovation for the better good um, of humanity, of our progress, of our culture. And I think we should do it again. There's no reason why we wouldn't. And again, it's, it's very hard to, to preach for, you know, just do good. You know, don't just think about money. Yeah, everybody needs to survive. But I think we got caught with such damaging narratives that we're, we're getting to a point of no return. Uh, on certain uh, topics. And, you know, again, climate change, you know, climate change is not is about consumption, climate change is about uh, commuting, climate change is about being greedy individuals and societies. And that will require to change that beyond policies, we will need to change mindsets, like deep mindsets that we've been drilling towards the complete opposite for the last you know, 50, 60 years, it's a hard one to, to shift, but we, we have, to, we really have to, you know, Speak, it's, it's no joke. Speaking of shifting mindsets, what happens if we start to actually automate a lot of the jobs away that we think we're going to be automating away? Um, this, yeah, I had, I actually just wrote a piece about um, automation and I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a total geek, you know, I'm like all, you know, science fiction, technology, space, exploration and I like the idea of automation but like a lot of things in in the tech industry my, my biggest question is also why do we want to automate everything what is this fascination with automation is it again about efficiency is it really about making better lives for employees there's a lot of people that are using that story I call it a story because I think it's a story that you know once we automate everything we'll never have to work and I'm like what <laughs> First of all, I love working. I, I don't want my job automated. I don't think it can be, but let's say it can. I, I don't want it. I, I'll feel so meaningless uh, if I can't do what I do. I love what I'm doing. And yes, automation is fantastic to take away uh, certain hazardous and, and unnecessary tasks from people. But it sounds to me quite funny that we created 80% of the jobs that we have today are man-made. Uh, I don't want to say fictional, but kind of, let's say there, there are side effects of, of the industrial revolution, right? So if we automate everything and our capacity is endless, but perhaps our financial capacity is lower, so we can't consume all the stuff that we can create. How do we generate revenue? How do we generate uh, productivity for humans? How do we generate uh, engagement for Would humans? we need to? 
Let's play devil's advocate. If we are able to produce everything, we have free energy, we have essentially free resources. What's the purpose of producing revenue? Well, I would love to, th- we already have all the resources that we need. The idea that we, we need more resources uh, in order to thrive as a society is false. We have enough revenue. We have enough produce if we want to. Uh, we have enough land. I'm looking at society and culture in a historical term. It's not that prosperity necessarily will lead, like let's say um, physical prosperity will necessarily lead to more meaningful or more uh, calm cultures. You know, so the idea if we have every, like, look, the story of the Garden of Aden is a great example. You know, I'm not saying humans are evil, but humans also thrive in, on conflict and they're not necessarily all good willing, let's share it all kumbaya humans. They want to have it all themselves. If we wanted to solve the, the hunger in Af- Africa, we could have done it. 10, 20 years ago, we could have done it. There is enough money. There is enough resources. Uh, there are enough resources. We're not doing it because, you know, humans also have traits that are related to greediness and, and the, the survival instinct of, of the individual. I don't think this is a problem that we're really needing to solve. I think we're focusing on these um, utopian futures, and that's something that happens a lot for, with uh, the tech industry. They're focusing on utopian futures where, in a weird way, uh, human nature is out of the equation. They don't predict that good technologies will be applied by bad, bad people, right? I don't think that most of, of the tech... They, they think like robots and they think we're all robots, yeah. essentially. And we're humans. Um, so this is why automation, in my mind, again, great thing for certain things, but I don't understand the obsession to the need to automate and quantify everything. I love obscurity. I think part of being human, part of the human experience is uncertainty. Uh, it's getting lost, you know, when you're in a city, it's getting lost in a city, not necessarily navigating from A to B in the quickest time. We've, we've been so automating our own culture that our values are, are just becoming about efficiency, um, oversimplification in a lot of, of cases, and kind of like abandoning the awe and beauty of just being, you know. We're taking life and experience and making it digitized into ones and zeros. Yeah, yeah. And we can quantify it so we can sell more stuff. Uh, which is a bit sad, I think. It is. And that at the same time, if we have the ability to move towards efficiency, if we have the ability to automate work, especially menial work, do we have a, a Luddite's obligation to society to keep around people for the sake of, in essence, giving them something to do with busy work? Or do, is because it, it kind of creates that paradigm where if you're able to do it, are you obligated to help people escape the job? Or do you have to keep the job because the only way that society functions is capitalism where they need to work or at least in the US, we're going to throw them on the streets and let them starve to death. It, um, it, it creates a lot of interesting questions of how do we solve those problems? Yeah. And again, um, the idea that we need to save people from their jobs, <laughs> you know, the idea that anyone... Well, most, has- people, most people don't like their jobs. So I'm, t- I'm talking about most people work their job because they have to work their job. If you look at the stats, it's something like 60 or 70% of people find their jobs meaningless, don't think they contribute, or just straight up hate their jobs. I think there are people that enjoy their jobs. They like what they're doing. But think about this. Would you be doing what you could now if you didn't get paid or if you didn't have to get paid from it? And the answer for you is yes. The answer for a lot of people is yes. But I feel like for the vast 
vast, vast majority, the answer is no. They would be doing something else that they found meaning from. I with that I completely agree. But again, you know, is the solution? You know, if the problem is people find their jobs meaningless, or people don't get satisfaction or the advancement they should out of their jobs, is the solution uh, to eliminate jobs? As a system, or to you know, this is my 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 thing with disruption. Do we want to just disrupt the system, or do we want to construct a better system? What is the better system that we can construct? What is the meaningful contribution that we can give to people in a way that they can be active if they want or not? That they can be、um, having meaningful work or craft or whatever if they want or not. This is the utopian society we really need to strive for. Utopian society doesn't need to not have jobs and have everything automated. It just needs to have more meaning and more purpose and more opportunities, right? And is that, that well, solving to, with automation? Is autom- we need to automate some of those things. So we need to automate. We can't have people in the fields picking、uh, picking crops. I saw Jesus. I'm I'm living in the U.S. and I saw someone painting road sign, painting the road lines, and he's leaning out of a truck going ridiculous speeds on a highway. That, that's dangerous. Re- things that are dangerous, yes. Things that are dangerous and and mundane and don't create value, yes. But how can we take this person and get him? Let's say get him to do the same thing. Let's say he doesn't hate his job. Let's assume because again, not everyone that do、uh, hard labor dislike their jobs. But they would rather do something else. Maybe you know. And again, we we have to be very careful. Like statistics and data. And again, I'm not saying like laborers love what they do. A lot of them probably don't. There are certain jobs that I will never repeat in my life either. But again, the question is again, how do we create meaning and value versus how do we make them avoid it? What would this A person that you saw on the side of the road will do when he doesn't paint the road. Maybe he'll paint houses. Maybe he'll paint portraits. But he'll. I think almost inevitably we could say that he would do something else. Yeah. What if he can't find a job? This is his only job, and this is how he pays his bills. And you just took it away from him. Is there a solution for that? I'm. I'm really happy to automate everything as long as I know that you. You know, we find solutions to humans in the same time.、Uh, I also had a great、uh, conversation. Uh, there is there is a lot of research being done about integrating、um, automation and, and with emphasis of integrating versus replacement. And、uh, Made Digital um, in uh, Denmark is actually a program that had been launched to figure out how to help Danish industries to stay in Denmark versus you know to outsource it elsewhere. And one of their solutions is to to indeed integrate automation, but still keep the human、uh, factors there, and actually to train their their laborers to become more、uh, managers or team coordinators、uh, with the robots for the robots. And that seems to be a lot more successful. It helps the laborers、um, re- being retrained and be acquainted with technology. It's really a retraining program and integration program versus a replacement program. That's a great solution for me. This is giving more meaning and purpose to the people working in the factories. They're still productive, but they have help. And actually, the, the robot integration in in that team has been optimal because he's becoming part of the team. It's not a competition between humans and robots or or automated systems. It's it's never a competition.、Um, and also to your question,、um, I feel like even if we automate everything, humans have the best ways. <laughs> Of of finding new meaningless jobs to give other humans to do, like、uh, people that get paid to to wait in the line for your new、uh, iPhone、uh, for twenty bucks an hour, right? Is that a job? It is, you know. 
Uh, it is now. <laughs> it is, but if we could automate, it would be so much better. But that's a, that's a. I'm not saying we can automate everything. I'm saying I'm saying the best way to think about what we should automate are we automate the things where solely one thing matters. And that's efficiency. That's something that can be quantified easily. Because if it can be quantified easily, it's something where we're doing our absolute darndest to replace the human because they are just a cog in the wheel versus something that has more, if it more or less, if it's left brained, those are things where a computer will be able to do it better than a human will. But if it's right brain, uh, the actually left and right brain isn't a true, true paradigm. But and in general, for the way that people think about it, if it's something that's more creativity focused, I think that's where humanity's future lies. Um, arguably, um, yes. But again, um, I'm, I'm seeing it in a more ambiguous way. Um, I think you're just uh, you're suggesting to disrupt the whole Zen Buddhism uh, system as well of finding meaning with action, even if it doesn't have meaning. And again, I don't know what the right answer is, and I don't wish for anyone that dislikes uh, their operation or definitely uh, gets in harm's way to not be replaced. Uh, this should definitely be improved and replaced. But for me, the core you know, question always goes back, you know, what's in it for the human? You know, that person, that individual, you know, how does it disrupt truly his life to not have that job? And what better solutions can we give him for better jobs? I agree. And I think it'll take some societal conversations that aren't happening near enough yet. Totally. So your background is augmented reality. And you have an interesting background at that. Give me a give me a 30,000 foot view on how you got here and how you got into AR. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I started as an industrial designer. So um, I studied in um, Italy, in Milan, in the Instituto Europeo di Design, and in the UK, in Central St. Martin's uh, College of Art and Design. And I was making things, right? I was making physical stuff uh, with um, a lot of emphasis on, on interiors, but uh, also like small electronics. And it was the late 90s, and AR and VR were having their, let's say, second revival. And, you know, I remember my whole year, everybody's graduation projects, or, or half of them at least, were all about interaction, interactive surfaces, and we thought this is coming and AR is coming. I actually did uh, an interactive kitchen system for one project, and the other one was um, an interactive communication system, but it didn't come as quickly as we thought. So, um, actually, for, for the next uh, 15 years after that, I was more busy in creating uh, product design, um, brand strategies, uh, consumer experiences, uh, but let's say more soft and not so um, uh, technology focused. All that until I did my master's degree in um, design innovation. And that's where I think uh, I started to spiral back into uh, human digital interactions and their meaning and their futures. I did um, a research project on VR because I wanted to prove my husband wrong. <laughs> uh, he basically came home. He's a game designer with the, the, the Oculus SDK1 and told me like, this is it. The future is here. Uh, VR is coming. Everything is going to change. And I tried it. And even though I know it was a, like an early, um, an early uh, dev kit, uh, product, I really wasn't impressed. And I was really disputing uh, with my husband whether or not VR is there yet and how close we are to that. So as nerds do, I kicked this off as a research project to prove him wrong. He still wasn't convinced. So I did my entire thesis uh, about immersive tech and implementation strategies of AR 
uh, to prove to him, to him that augmented reality will be the next thing. He was still not convinced. So I turned it into a book and have been uh, lucky enough to, to be consulting and working within um, immersive tech and AR since in the last um, three years. And now from Toronto, I'm um, doing a lot of collaborations in various areas, both related to, to AR, augmented reality, but a lot about digital inclusivity and, and how to create future platforms that consider existing systems that complement society and a lot of cultural activity um, that is related to immersive tech and um, emerging technologies. Did you win him over to your side of the argument yet? Uh, I have. I think he just, uh, I, I'm, I think, yeah, I think so. I'm suspecting that he just uh, says so to uh, not let me do more things to convince him. <laughs> I think I just wore him off. But no, I, I did convince him. Uh, actually, we had the bet that if I do manage to convince him, he'll, he'll create an AR app for the book, which he has. So I think I won. But again, it, this is not to say that uh, virtual reality is, doesn't have a place. I'm just a bigger believer that augmented reality uh, has a bigger potential in, in widespread and, and a variety of, of applications simply because it sits within the physical world that is a space that we all know already in and we don't need to hijack anyone uh, from. We don't need to convince people not to be in the real world in order to interact with that platform. Um, yeah, and I think it's super exciting because we are really on the verge of augmented reality becoming integrated and diffused even more than it is now. What will that look like and where are we at today? Um, we are still um, really standing you know, at, at the edge of the cliff and waiting to dive. Uh, what would it look like is a topic of a lot of discussions and um, arguments for people in the field. For example, uh, wearable devices there are, that are possibly the best way to experience AR, in my mind, will actually get integrated a lot later and a lot less than we think especially when we talk about head-mounted devices. For a lot of reasons, some of the reasons we saw already with, with Google Glass that got hugely rejected at the time, partially because the applications for it were not mature enough for people to want to wear it all day long or even more than a short period of time. Secondly, because of issues of privacy and surveillance and social acceptance, once you wear this device, you are becoming obviously not just a person within the experience, but a person that can register and record everything that is around him, partially because we're missing the content yet and the devices that are um, cost-effective and efficient enough, especially when we talk about energy. Uh, so I'm a little bit more skeptic about how quickly we'll see wearables, but in terms of mobile smartphones, mobile devices, we are in the middle of, of really a quantum leap in, in the technology and its application. I think already from the iPhone X, uh, the capabilities have, have really are in, in such a place that we, we can now, you know, we, we've done in, in two, three years, I think more than, than was done in the last 20 years. And it's only getting more and better. I'm seeing amazing stuff. I'm seeing tools that are accessible for users. I don't know if you've seen the latest demo of the Minecraft AR capabilities in collaboration with uh, Apple. It was, for, for me, this, this really blew my mind. And not because the, the simulation, I mean, it's Minecraft. It's, it's basically, you know, building blocks. It's not that the, it's, it's, um, it's not that the digital asset was uh, 
hyper-realistic and I thought it was there, but it's the ability to actually have your little avatar inside the Minecraft AR that you're building on your desk. And that avatar is reactive to your actions in real time, but also the ability to then take that construction, that building that you bought, that you built in Minecraft AR and scale it up around you in the space that you are. So this idea of really Alice in Wonderland that you can jump, you know, through the rabbit hole of AR now and have uh, have yourself uh, shrunk into uh, this parallel world or have that parallel world brought to you is, is quite mind-blowing. The, the fact that we can do it already in such great quality in real time, um, we're really nearly there. And then to be fully there when it comes to AR, do you think we need some type of heads-up display or contact lenses where people can have those experiences without having to hold up a phone? Um, I I think it will inevitably. I think it will happen. It is happening. It is being developed. Uh, again, I'm really concerned about the ethical and the ethical issues around it. Um, You're concerned, but you think society will be there? People are willing to post anything on Facebook, or a large percentage are. Um, yes, but again, but it's changing. But we're seeing a new generation that looks at digital in a in a slightly unfazed and an unimpressed way, and are willing to experience things in real life more and more and to to have a division between them so i never assume that any technology will have an exponential implementation because humans very very simple humans tend to to change their behaviors and thoughts and opinions i think it will happen eventually i think we're still not there yet and i'm happy we're not there yet uh, because again, as a society, we need to figure out how we're going to do it in a healthy way. We've can, seen. The can we do that before we screw it up? Usually, we have to screw it up before we figure it out. That's our. That's our. That's humanity's way. That's kind of what we talked about before. Um, we can do it before we screw it up, but will we do it before we screw it up? Two different questions. I think we can. Uh, I think the conversations are happening uh, within the industry, uh, but as as you said, uh, the incentives needs to be need to be different. Not just the intentions, but the incentives need to be different. And this is where it's really important. And I always talk to not just to policymakers, but also to content makers. And, and I really tell them, you know, you know, really with great power comes great responsibility. This is really the power to shape people's realities right? It's, it's an immense power. It's an immense media and medium. Um, we really have to be mindful of, of what we're doing and how we're doing it, doing it and kind of like step out of our developer shoes and kind of look at, again, the individual and the society and all the systems around it and be better at creating this disruptive uh, technology. How often do you think about money in retirement? If you're like most of us, probably not enough. That's why I'm excited to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Rocket Dollar, the company that's revolutionizing investing through self-directed investments in IRAs and 401ks and much, much more. If you're somebody who's not really satisfied with a preset list of mutual funds, if you want to be involved in startups and real estate in a broader mix of assets and in things that you have expertise in, so you can say, hey, the market's going up or down, then check out rocketdollar.com slash disruptors. Most people haven't heard of other types of investment accounts because IRA providers, they don't let you invest outside of their set mutual fund offerings. They don't let you invest in the type of stuff that you want to. But as a startup investor, as someone who's involved in this space, or as someone who's listening to this podcast and clearly educated on where we're headed, you might want to have a little bit more of your hand in investing. These type of accounts have been historically difficult to open and operate, not to mention expensive because of all the paperwork and let's face it, financial bullshit. Rocket Dollar makes it 
fast, easy, and inexpensive. For $100 off your Rocket Dollar account setup fee, visit rocketdollar.com slash disruptors and enter disruptors, all caps, at checkout. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S at checkout so that they know we sent you there and you can help support our show. If you're interested in investing and winning, rocketdollar.com slash disruptors for more details. And now let's get back to the episode. How do we do that when we are overlaying things with the physical world? So there's been plenty of dystopian sci-fi where you're walking around and can't escape the ads that are chasing you directly targeted to your contact lenses, etc. There's those risks. There's the the skinhead. Let's make every single person I see a white Aryan so that I don't have yada yada. I can see a lot of dystopian. I can see a lot of utopian. What do you think it ultimately ends up looking like? It ends up looking, uh, it ends up being heterotopian, a little bit of both. (laughs) And I I actually do a lot of workshops about, you know, dystopia, utopia turned into heterotopia because, you know, we will have the worst things and the best things. I'm optimistic that um, the best things uh, will win eventually because humans might be mischief, but they're not, they inherently want to survive and thrive. And I think there is a lot of discussion that needs to happen more about AR ethics and come up with with industry, um, let's say industry and regulation and regulations around immersive technology ethics. And some of them would limit the, the creative scope. Yes. And as a creative, it bums me out. Uh, but as a human, I'm kind of, you know, I have to accept that, you know, this is potentially a technology that will change the way we interact with the world, that we interact with technology, with data, with other people. So we have to be mindful on, on how we do it. And we have to be, we have to, one, create um, a consensual and honest industry. We shouldn't be aspiring to create a reality or its ultimate reality without an explicit and ongoing conscious uh, consent of of the human using it. Uh, we need to respect uh, privacy and agency in in physical and mental spaces uh, because if we apply dark UX to augmented reality, it can be destructive. What's dark UX? Dark UX is is the nudging mechanisms that are created by um, UX designers, such as alerts and and reminders that kind of um, makes the don't really contribute to, to the productivity of the user, but just puts them into um, an anxious mode that keeps them on the platform. That's dark UX. So it's effective, but it's not beneficial. It, uh, it doesn't give anything to the user, uh, except of nothing except depression and anxiety. And this is where a lot of social media platforms are acknowledging it and kind of changing some of the, the settings. So for example, you can't see in certain platforms the amount of followers. You can't... It, it's not quantifiable for an external person. So people are not chasing the amount of likes, but looking for perhaps more meaningful interactions on the platform in, in ways that will keep people on it, things like that, or algorithms that are not spiraling up because of any interaction, negative or positive. You know, in the past, uh, any reaction was a good reaction, right? And now a lot of platforms are becoming more ethical and kind of like trying to block or let's say reward positive interaction versus negative. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you do it without changing the advertising model and go into a subscription model because otherwise you're fighting again, you're fighting gravity. Um, Yeah. Some changes will have to happen. Uh, But I think they are changing. I think these, these tech industries are diversifying and changing. 
Uh, and I think if they ha- if they're not, they better do it because the consumers are changing. If you look at at the real numbers behind, you know, the new users on on social media platforms and user engagement, they are shifting. You know, to 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 the let's say I don't want to say to the light side, but yeah, to the light side. Um, how many people do you know today that are just disinterested, um, disinterested on, on going on social media? I know so many people that just like close their accounts for not for all, but for many. So this kind of uh, spot. Yeah, it's middle aged and baby boomers that are on Facebook. You've got slightly younger kids on Snapchat. And then you've got, yeah, it's, um, and now all the kids today are playing Fortnite and that's their social media. They just go and kill each other. But that's a, that's a whole nother story. Um, but it is part of the story because Fortnite is, is creating something, an added value that Facebook isn't. Facebook have been just, you know, doing the same thing and trying to sell us stuff and the, the magic disappeared. And now comes a new platform and changes the, the rules of the game. This is why like, yeah, social media is going to be here probably for, for the next few years. Uh, but not the same way that we know it, not as a scroll wall of uh, showing your holiday pictures. Just to make everyone else feel bad and to make yourself feel good. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, we, it gamified the worst in us and hopefully we start to get past some of that. What do you think about the players going forward for augmented and virtual reality? You've got Apple, you've got their, your mystical magic leap, you've got Microsoft trying to do whatever Microsoft is trying to do. How do you think about the players going forward? Who do you think ultimately becomes the the prominent guy in, or girl in this space? Where do you see it headed? Uh, my, my heart tells me, uh, but also my brain. Uh, I still think Apple is... Uh, you a fangirl? Oh, I, I am, but I'm also very critical about some of the products that they released and the platforms they released in the last few years. So I'm a fangirl in, in the sense that I think Apple can get it right. I don't think they have yet, but I think they can get it right because they they have a unique position of having a closed system that helps. You know, They have a closed system. They have a pile of cash. <laughs> they have some of the best people uh, recruited to work for them. They have a very profound understanding of, of user interaction and their users and digital interaction uh, that's undisputed. And they can build a hardware, software, and the entire ecosystem around it uh, with Apple Pay. Like they have the whole package. They have all the tools to succeed and they are taking their time. And everything that I've seen that comes from them is fantastic. You missed the one most important aspect and that is they have the fans or depending on the product or how you look at it, suckers who are willing to go and buy whatever product comes out. Oh, so yeah, yeah. The early adapters they have for sure. The early adapters they have for sure. Um, what will happen next? Because they have launched some some AR capabilities and a lot of the users, actually their existing users are not using it that much. But again, I think they haven't rolled out yet. They're, they're showing bits and bobs of the AR, but they haven't rolled it out yet in the way that they can and they will. You know, it's it's been soft launch. So I'm a big believer of Apple. Um, Microsoft is doing great work. Uh, a lot of collaborations. They really are sober about where it is. They really are focusing on AR for enterprise. They're really doing the right thing. Uh, they're rolling back products that 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 don't work and then relaunching it. So they're they're really working the right way. And Microsoft in general, I think, have been doing fantastic things in the last few years and revamped themselves as an innovation tech company versus you know the old. Uh, four square giant that they were. I think they really are shifting the needle on that. So these are my two biggest bets. Um, Google are doing a lot of uh, work, amazing work in AR, 
but you know, they're competent at hardware. Yeah, the hardware uh, hinders them, but also I think a lot of the things they're doing, a lot of the things they're doing are great. But I think again, they're thinking they have the advertisement lens. They're so focused and and trying to sell you things through the, what they're building eventually that I'm kind of you know I'm like I'm not excited by it as a user by by some of the stuff. Let me give you a dystopian dark horse, Amazon. If Amazon can see what you're looking at. How terrifying is that? Uh, and I, I, I could see, I could see Bezos going for it, just putting in some money. He, he went for Alexa so he could listen in on conversations and be able to say, hey, Alexa, you know what? I think I'll have chicken parmesan today, tomorrow. Okay, well, I'll go order that all for you. And here's all the other things. By the way, they're all Amazon Basics and Whole Foods versions. But he played that one well. Well, let me tell you one thing. They already are in AR. And the second thing, Alexa is AR. So we, we tend to think that AR is only visual, you know, visual augmentation, but sonic augmentation is as much as AR is anything. And actually, all the smart assistants are AR. They're Interesting. AR. So you'd, you'd call those AR then, I see. Yeah. They, they are, in terms of interface, there are AR. In terms of, of computational powers, there are AI, but also, you know, visual, let's say visual AR is also AI and computer learning and, and computer vision, right? That's the engine. AR is the interface. So they are AR. So Jeff knows already. Again, but even with Amazon, um, you know, again, I think they don't have the whole package. I think they'll be there for sure. Amazon and Alibaba, you know, they'll be there. They are investing in this space. But again, you need a lot more than intention and money. You need to understand how people interact with technology, really deeply understand with technology in the real world. Apple knows it. Uh, Microsoft knows it because they have this this competence in, in creating hardware and, and physical user interfaces. So they have an advantage that other platforms don't have. Magically, I would prefer uh, to keep the fifth on that. I have mixed feelings about them. Uh, I think they have the best of intentions. I think they've done great things for the industry. I don't know if they will be the winner. They might be in, in the running. They certainly got the cyberpunk look down. Uh, yeah, that's actually not not in my mind not not um, a no, winning feature. It's not it's not a winning it's not a winning feature. Apple's Apple or someone else will put out something that looks very sleek and sexy, and that's what people adopt. For me, augmented reality really doesn't count until you have some type of visual display because because otherwise it's something like an Xbox. You have to go decide to use it. Well, that's if you think about it as device space versus real spatial computing. So what if you have environments, you know, let's think more holodeck. Smart mirror. Okay. Well, no, but first of all, smart mirrors, like I'm, I'm all for uh, integrating AR in existing surfaces like windows and mirrors. That's such an easy pathway to, to objects that already have a certain function in our lives and you don't have to change everything in order to have them. I mean, it's costly, but you can integrate a digital function on top of an existing one. That's perfect. That's really what we want to begin with. Uh, but if we talk more about holographic and spatial computing, I'm, I'm very excited about that too, because it's a lot more, it's a more, it's a harder way to, to reach augmentation, but it's a lot more inclusive and social. And ultimately, people want that as well. So until we get to a point of, of really being able to stream multi-user um, head-mounted devices, and that will take a lot of, <laughs> that will still take some time, not a lot of time, but some time to reach. I'm, I'm a bigger believer in, in spatial computing that is really implemented within the physical environment versus via device. 
Speaking of holograms, how far off are we from having Obi-Wan appear in the middle of my room and start talking to me? First of all, never give me references to Star Wars. I'm a trackie. <laughs> but- okay, I'm sure I'm sure you guys have holograms as well. I'm not a huge fan of either, but I know the scene well. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, I'm not kidding, but uh, I will answer regardless. Um, no, we, we're 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 almost there. Like like. It's, it's capable, it's possible. Uh, there are some issues of lighting and, and be having a control environment, but yeah, we can have uh, real-time streaming of holographic uh, interaction. Or it's, it's not that they're possible, they exist. Now the question is, like, how do we then uh, apply them in the commercial way and in a way that is meaningful? And cost-effective. And cost-effective, of course. What technology or trend outside of what we've talked about today are you most excited about and why? Ah, wow. Um, There are so many technologies I'm excited about. Um, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, Actually, I've just seen a really amazing demonstration. It's small scale, but of having levitating particles via sonic, uh, sonic uh, sound waves. So the ability to to really create, um, uh, to control and create shapes physical physical particles to, to move with sonic waves. That kind of blew my mind because that's an idea that, um, that that's a technology that can really, if we talk about mobility, if we talk about, about the physical world and, and technology, this is really something really exciting, you know, shape-shifting of, and, and motion-shifting of things without having uh, physical contact. That's, for me, amazing. That's the next thing for me. And yes. we, also, we also have Back to the Future. We want hoverboards. We want them now. Yes. Well, not me because I know I will, I'm, I'm going to be so terrible at, at, at a hoverboard. Like the amount of, of, of helmets, <laughs> helmets. Yeah, I'll need all the gear, all the helmets. Yes, that makes two of us. I'm incredibly clumsy. Yeah. Two last questions for you. Sure. First question: What is the one thing I should have asked you about that you'd want to talk about? Mm. You should have asked me. Actually, you should have asked me. So I'm happy you didn't. I get this question a lot. I sometimes get irrit- I get irritated when I get asked that, and I get irritated when I don't. So I have to decide. Uh, but it's um, asking about women in tech and women in technology and the state of of representation for women and minorities in the tech industry. And what do you think we can do about it? Uh, more. <laughs> Um, I think we're in a weird place there where we are moving in the right direction, but again, not quick enough and not good enough. And I think there's also a lot of resistance, uh, a lot of whitewashing and uh, a lot of um, hostility from, let's say, the ex-privileged. And I'm, and I'm getting that because um, I'm, I'm a big advocate for, for women and minorities and, and marginalized uh, representation, re- represented individuals in tech. I mean, for me, it's normal. I don't understand why it's not, why the boys club <laughs> like, thinks it's a good idea to have this one demographic creating everything for everyone else. Uh, besides like a power trip, but it, it's not good. It's not sustainable. It's not positive. It's not profitable long-term, you know, and research shows it. Uh, but I'm a little bit worried that a lot of people that need to be better allies are not because they are worried that the carpet is being pulled from under their feet. And I had, you know, a few, you know, people that are kind of close to me that I've known for, for a long time that they're liberal and they're really pro, you know, pro-women, pro-minorities, pro LGBTQ also tell me like, yeah, but I want, I want uh, people to be judged for who they are. I feel like I'm being marginalized as a white male now. And, you know, 
And again, I don't want to mock their concern because it, it's, it's a legitimate concern. But I also want to emphasize that, you know, sometimes to make, to fix things, you will have to lose your privilege. You know, the, the, the idea that people want equality as long as it doesn't touch them, them or their status is, is a little bit weird in my mind. Um, and well, it scares so we want, me. Should we want equality of outcomes or equality of inputs? Uh, I think where we are now, you know, sometimes you have to intervene artificially to correct, uh, just even for, for visibility sakes, uh, you need to correct what's happening. And, you know, it's, 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 again, a very complex system, you know, when people say like, well, we want the most qualified candidates, regardless if they are people of color, if they are women, etc. And I'm like, well, you're just tattooing the, 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 the status gap that women and, and uh, people of color and LGBTQ uh, individuals, for example, have been set into. So you, you can't help underprivileged communities by setting the same standards for everyone. It's, it's very hard. You, you might help individuals, but you won't help societies. So I would say, yeah, you, you'll have to, in the beginning, you'll have to bring more faces and more voices and more individuals for the better good of, of the eventual progression. Does that lead to resentment though? Let's say, let's say you're, you're someone who wouldn't have gotten in otherwise, but you get in and you're at the bottom of the, the heap, so to speak. Yeah. Do you, do you get upset, frustrated knowing I'm here as a, as a charity case, if we're going to be brutally honest with it in terms of how, how things are sorted? I think I, I wouldn't wish for anyone to, to think or to be in a position, uh, thinking that it's only that and they can't contribute. But I would say you can't level the field. Like the, the idea of absolute justice doesn't exist, but we can have better, better justice, right? We can have more opportunities. And even if it's an unfair advantage that is given to someone that has been disadvantaged his whole life, I'm like, go get it. Sorry, but go get it. You know, I think, I think you're better with having doing the adjustments on the input side versus the filtering side. Because if you do it on the filtering side, then you're creating that that paradigm of I mean, I imagine I imagine you could kind of analogize it to having having a natural child and then adopting one. There's going to be some type of tensions that occur there just because one and the other. And I, f- I feel like you could create similar things. Like I'm thinking we had somebody on the podcast a while back and he was saying something to the effect of 80% of Asian students that applied, I want to say it was to Harvard, were in the top 20% and 80% of African-American students that applied and got into Harvard were in the bottom 20% of the ones that got in. And it was it was bringing up the the differences between having set quotas and people that were getting rejected despite being at least metric-based, much better candidates and performing better. But the question is also about the filtering system to begin with. Because again, if, if you set a filtering system that was always adequate to the elite or to a certain demographic, yeah, that demographic will excel in that regardless. Like I just started reading this fantastic article about, you know, the fact that, um, I wish I would remember the name of it, um, but uh, it's talking about how like space exploration and, and space stations were built for men. So... You know, they were built for men ergonomically. They were built for men, you know, on a lot of physiological levels. So 
how do you expect female astronauts to excel in, in an environment where that was built for men? And the same thing about this, you know, these whole paradigms. And if the filtering system allows only one, you know, if, if you create, um, I don't know, a lunch. Bias menu, in, it, bias out. Yeah, bias in, bias out. Yeah, then you, you, it will never change. It will never change. You'll only automate or, or you know, automate the, or, or change the individuals that you're not creating real diversity. You're just making them assimilate to the success story of, you know, the, this already successful. That's not diversity. So, yeah, I want as many people in through the door as possible to start making a difference from the inside and to change the influence and the culture from the inside. So, hell yeah, I will let them in the door. I just get worried because I see the Scandinavian countries and they're probably the most equal and economically successful worldwide. And they actually have larger gaps when it comes to male-female disparity among different job sections. And that one could argue that's that's societal, but one could also very easily argue that's the gender preferences, even though people don't want to discuss something like that. Um, I can discuss it because I lived in the Netherlands for, for a lot of years. Um, so it's it's funny because um, you're, you're right in that sense, um, but it's partially, it's it's for other reasons. It's for, for in my mind, it's for actually giving such great benefits um, for women um, after they give birth um, that in certain cases, women are don't need don't have the desire or need to go back to work because they're uh, sufficiently uh, supported and funded. On the other hand, um, men are or let's say uh, companies are more concerned about hiring women because they're concerned about the sacrifices they might have to like uh, have as an employer. Uh, once they give birth, it, it's that simple, um, and it's kind of like the the double edged sword of like being so socially um, advanced. But again, this comes like this change can't be just regulation; it has to be a mindset change. And and when we only evaluate our the performance of of employees by uh, showing up. Or, or by their physical presence versus long-term um, contribution via quality impact, etc. Then, yeah, men will win because they can show up, you know, to work, you know, the day after their their child is born. They don't have any physical um, uh, kind of like hindrances, um, yeah, and they are also culturally more more uh, encouraged to to not stay at home. But this is changing too. So, you know, I, I like to look at this kind of data in a more in a wider cultural context. And again, ask myself, well, is, is the intention the problem or the application the problem? I think the application, the intention is right. I think so. I think it's probably even more complicated than that because everything is dynamic. But that's the, that's the nature. You got to have the conversations. You got to try to fix the inherent problems. I got one last pro- question for you, Galish, before you tell people more about you and where to find you. And that's if you had to leave people with one thing, it could be anything, a quote, a call to action, whatever you like, what would it be and why? Ooh, um, at the risk of, um, yeah, the risk of, of being very lame, I really have to say YOLO. <laughs> like, really, you only live once, and, and I mean it in the deepest way. I mean that um, we have to be true to ourselves and to our personality, and, um, and I'm not saying everybody has to qu- quit their job tomorrow and look for purpose, but um, I'm saying it's, it, it is your life. It's bigger than your job. It's bigger than your status. 
um, yeah, be a better person if you can. And again, it sounds like really hippie and terrible, but, but it's true. This is really the root of meaning to just keep trying to be better people, better individuals, um, to not come approach this world from a, a place of, of fear and, and, uh, let's say emotional or physical or resource hunger, but to know that this world is, is there's abundance, there's abundance and there are opportunities and you just have to be receptive and just like look for them and be active and, you know, to not give in to life. I like it. Choose the bigger life, go for gold, do something great. Where can people find you, Gali? People can find me either on galitariel.com. They can contact me uh, or through uh, wonderlands.com. Uh, Com. That's with AR, obviously, Wonder Lens. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at, at Delete Ariel. Uh, they can find me on Instagram uh, on, at the AR Girl or on LinkedIn at Galit Ariel. They can find me everywhere. I'm everywhere, basically. And we'll put links and everything good in the show notes, guys. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for coming on, Galit. Thank you. Hope you guys have enjoyed this. And if you have, make sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing it with a friend. It's incredibly helpful for us and incredibly, hopefully helpful for the world to try to get this type of stuff out there. So thank you. And bye. Thanks. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.